This is Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. Over this series, we examine the pressures facing families today and the practical steps that can be taken to better support our children and families over their life course journey. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. In this latest episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kylie Burke. Kylie is a researcher and a psychologist with more than 20 years' experience in working with parents and families and communities. Her work focuses on supporting parents and children experiencing adversity, including addressing the intergenerational effects of social disadvantage. Kylie is a research fellow with the Life Course Centre and the Parenting and Family Support Centre at the University of Queensland, and she's overseen a large-scale population-level trial of the Triple P system known as the Every Family Project Initiative. Every Family targets some of the most socially disadvantaged and vulnerable families in Australia and is a flagship project of the Life Course Centre. It's great to have you here today, Kylie, and welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Matt. It's a little different today because we're both involved in this major initiative and we're going to have a conversation about some of the key issues and learnings that have arisen over the last seven years that we've been uh, working on this initiative. But, you know, perhaps the place to start is just explaining what the Every Family Project is all about. Sure. So Every Family, as you said, is a a long-term project. It's been a, a gigantic undertaking, which is really looking at what kind of effect can we have on communities which are experiencing significant social disadvantage if parenting support is available to them across the entire community. So from light touch kinds of support for families who just need a little boost in order to try and engage families who perhaps need more support but are not yet willing to walk through the door of more intensive tertiary agencies, Mm -hmm. right through to that type of one-on-one individual type of work that happens with families who've got highly complex and long-term needs that would benefit from parenting interventions. Yeah, and I suppose when you think about the complex nature of all communities, really, where you've got differences of levels of need and people are sometimes coming to parenting programs with quite complex histories that make even the engagement in a parenting program more challenging and difficult. When we think about taking a population-level perspective... What do you see as some of the unique advantages of just making participating in parenting a healthy, normal thing rather than almost that you're having to admit that you failed as a parent to put your hand up? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that having parenting available as something that is just there in your community and that everybody knows about makes it okay to seek help when you need it. And it also for families who are kind of struggling to even grasp what kinds of supports might be available or helpful to them, being able to go into a place that you go every day, which might be your children's school or childcare centre, and see information, hear information, take part in a program, actually kind of opens up their 
understanding and their views on how their community can help them and what other sorts of supports might be out there. And it's interesting in my experience in delivering parenting programs in communities where parents, for example, are participating in a a light touch seminar program. The number of parents who will exit from that process with a clear intention to use that information that they've been able to access during that seminar, but also They tend to talk about it with other people in their social world and in that process of building this notion of a kind of a almost like a fanning of a social contagion that seems to be one of the crucial things to ensure that you get sufficient spread of an intervention within a community otherwise it's contained to a very small proportion of the population would you agree yeah absolutely and and across not just my experience with every family but my experience Mm. of working in communities across the years is that very often when we start out an initiative like this or start out a new service the parents that you get who come along are the parents who will come along to support their community or support their Mm -hmm. whether that's their school or their childcare or their broader community they don't necessarily have high needs but it's those parents who then by their experience and sharing their experience make it okay for the parents who perhaps really would benefit more and who are, who are struggling with higher and more complex issues make they make it okay for those parents to come and so we see this kind of trajectory over time where initially it starts out with families who perhaps coming for a preventative or boost of confidence for themselves who come along and then as time goes on over a 12 months to two years probably period then you start really starts to see a shift where you're getting a much greater balance of families who are coming because they're experiencing needs and they have heard about the program as something that is helpful to all families. It's interesting the data on participation of parents who, when a population approach that is tiered and a multi-level system, so in other words, it's not a one-size-fits-all, so there are different ways in which families can engage, that over time you really do get a very significant number of more vulnerable families putting up their hand and saying, this is okay for me too. And previously they may have associated doing a parenting program with the child protection system or something that has created some stigma around it. Now they start to see it as something that this could really be good for me and my family and my kids. Yeah, let me give you an example of a family that came through, in fact, which I think illustrates exactly what you're saying. So we ran a seminar series in one of our trial locations. So the seminar series is three 90-minute seminars that start with a kind of a general overview of positive parenting and some key tips that parents can take away and then move into slightly more specific topics with this particular family who came along it was a a dad Mm -hmm. a fairly young dad who came with his mum and initially they came up to me right at the beginning of the seminar and they said to me what time is it going to start is it going to be on time will it be finished on time Okay, so their yeah. level of engagement is pretty low. Yeah. They came because they'd been told to come. Yeah. And the son was eight years old. He was living with the grandmother, but they were wanting him to go to live with mm-hmm. dad. But dad had learning difficulties, had experiences of drug and alcohol recovery and mental health issues. And so they were looking to try and do a transition right. to get him home. Sounds though like he didn't want to be there to start no, off with. Yeah. No, really didn't. And nor did mum, the mm-hmm. grandmother either particularly. So... so what happened so they sat at the back yeah at the end of the session they kind of came up and asked me whether it would start on time the next week the next week they came and instead of sitting up the back they sat down the front 
and they asked me a couple of questions which were to do with strategies mm-hmm. and mentioned that they had tried a couple of things from the first seminar. By the third seminar, they were they came up to me at well, at the end of that session, actually yeah. the second session, as they were walking out, I, I had they came up to me at the end of it and I had a brief conversation with them and they walked away and I heard the mother say to her son, we just take it one step at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll just try something, which was wonderful. Like So they were starting to talk yeah. about making changes. By the third session, they came in, they sat right down the front in front of me, they arrived 20 minutes early and they had to tell me about how they had started the grandchild in tennis and how much he loved it and how proud they were of it. That's a great story because what it's reflecting to me is some of the changes that are taking place within families when you destigmatize parenting support some families, when they start rightly, are a bit suspicious. I would be. If I was trying something for the first time, I would be checking it out whether this is for me or not. But what your story is conveying is that as they gained a greater understanding, a bit of experience and had more confidence in you as the presenter, it became okay for them to utilise the information that they are hearing about and being prepared to try it out. And then they try it out and get some early wins. Yeah. And just changes. and two things really stood out for me. One was the the confidence in being able to talk about to try things and talk about and wanting yeah. to share it. Mm-hmm. And the other was that they without them even realizing, you know, they were suddenly proud and praising and talking about how they praise. So they you know, they were sharing their actions that they were taking, which were to amazing. Me, to me, this is sort of hitting a very important point and that is that in the hands of a skilled practitioner who knows how to engage parents who have doing it tough and they've got circumstances that make raising children just a little more complex than it is for other families, that those same parents, they still want the best things for their kids and that they're looking for support and advice. Now, let me just move slightly to a slightly different issue and that is that when we start thinking about the kinds of competencies or capabilities that we think parents need one of the things that has struck me over the years of doing research in parenting apart from the fact that parents generally are wanting to do the right thing by their kids that if we think about the crucial drivers of children thriving and doing well I mean we summarize these as five core ideas kids being raised in a a safe and interesting and engaging environment. We could probably add and a healthy environment. I'd also add predictable, which Uh, you're probably going to go to next. Predictable and certainty. The second would be a positive learning environment Mm -hmm. so that it's a world of encouragement and positivity. But of course, there are different ways in which kids have to learn to do things without always looking, expecting any kind of uh, appraise, attention and reward. But it's challenging when kids are learning new behaviours to do this so that they often need a bit more. The third is boundaries and limits and assertive discipline. The fourth, reasonable expectations of your children and of yourself as a parent. 
and finally taking care of yourself because if you don't look after yourself as a parent how much harder is it for a parent to be consistent and patient and nurturing with their children any reflections on those no I think you're spot on on all of that and and particularly I I like that last one and I I always really emphasize this one you know it, it is such a critical thing not only because it creates a better environment for children to thrive Mm -hmm. but also because we need to remember that they are adults themselves and you don't stop being a human being who has dreams and the right to have a happy well life when you become a parent just this week i had a parent say to me they have got no chance of being able to take care of themselves when they've got complete responsibility for their children and you've got a partner who won't help. I cannot afford to take my eye off the ball to do with what I have to do for my kids. And I was thinking, this is a mum who is so totally committed to what it is she has to do with her children, she's actually not even giving herself permission to take care of herself. Absolutely. And I think that is a story that we hear over and over and over again. I certainly have in my more than 20 years of work experience. I'm sure you have in your more than that. Think about this whole idea of one generation passing on to the next generation. Some of the same problems and perhaps even poor ways of relating to each other. And we're trying to break that into generational transmission of disadvantage and not doing well. What do you see as the role of parenting in helping break that passing on, the kids doing exactly the same things that were done to them? Yeah, well, parenting is the early, it's the early training ground, isn't it? It's mm. where kids learn the values that they, that they are going to take into their adult lives. So their parents are in such a critical role model in the lives of their children. So if parents are able to demonstrate hope and that their children and themselves have worth and that there are ways of responding and behaving in the world that demonstrate respect and compassion Mm -hmm. and all of those kinds of things, then they're the sort of adults that are going to grow up to be that next generation. So it's all about capability development in children so that we're helping parents with the skills and strategies they need to help their children learn the skills and strategies they need to do well. Yeah, so that question that I think generally we hear in the media and other sorts of questions, which is what what are the things that you would a lot of people talk about the things that they don't want to do that their parents did and then yeah. when they become a parent they find themselves doing them mm-hmm. but we want to flip that around too and it's about we want kids to be thinking about the things that their parents did that they do want to do with their kids and repeat those. Mm-hmm. Yep. And everyone, if you think about coming to the parenting role, has a history of, of good memories and perhaps not so good memories. And sometimes we wanted to carry forward those things that we experienced as kids through good parenting, but there's other stuff we want to leave behind. Exactly. Just focusing for a moment on the issue of engagement of more socially vulnerable and disadvantaged families. I mean, one of the great myths out there is that evidence-based parenting programs, people who are from really socially disadvantaged circumstances, they're not effective. They won't engage them. They're not wanting to participate. That's a myth, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I think some of the biggest changes and light bulb moments that I have ever seen in my years of working with families have been with families who are experiencing really significant needs and issues and where other agencies potentially have actually given up on them. 
Right. I'm glad we just sort of brought that to a, a clear focus because sometimes the message out there is that these families are so complex, there's so many different things going on. How can you possibly do a parenting program with them when they've got housing insecurity and they don't have a job and they're in a violent relationship and it's been in the history of trauma and abuse? I would say those same parents are still parents and they're wanting to do the right things by their kids. Absolutely. And we also know that if you can start to feel confident and competent in an area of your life, it doesn't matter which area of your life, but doing that in parenting is probably one of the highest value areas where you can develop confidence and competence. And if you can achieve that, then that generalizes out it filters out into other areas of your life just another kind of myth that's sometimes out there is that if you're from a different culture and you speak a different language and you're not growing up in this sort of individualistically focused culture that sometimes you know australia tends to be grouped with how do you believe a high quality evidence-based parenting intervention can deal with the issue of cultural difference Yeah, look, I think one of the things that I've learned across the years of working with lots of different, particularly multicultural groups, is that values around our parenting tend, or what we want for our children, tend to be the same. Mm. There are some minor differences around what those cultural values might be, but generally parents want the best for their children. They want them to be respectful. They want them to be good friends to other people. They want them to be kind and compassionate. To do well at school. To do well at school. To be able to to provide for mm. their families going forward. All of those it's always the same. So the, I think one of the things that's really important in the parenting programs that we offer is to, to families is that they are offered as suggestions and that families make their own goals and determine what it is that's most important for them. Our job is to help them get there. You've landed on a really crucial issue that's dear to my heart, which is the issue of taking a self-regulation framework. Mm, Absolutely. And so that when we think about programs like Triple P being delivered into the community, the assumption that it's all about prescribing how parents have to raise their children is just actually not the way in which these programs work best. Because if you allow parents to determine their goals, which are informed by their culture, their traditions, their priorities, as you're saying before, so many parents are choosing very similar things they're wanting to do. And in my experience, any they're all looking for practical things that actually work and they actually don't care whether it's come from another culture if they can see themselves in that situation dealing with the child they're looking for ways that will be helpful does does that match your experience yeah absolutely and i think talking to some of the families who have moved here from refugee camps in other countries Mm -hmm. and they're trying to raise their children in a culture that is slightly different to their own their challenge is often about how do they develop the core values around what they want for their kids are the same but they want their children to have what's best from Australia and what's best from their culture and keep those two things going. So often when you're talking to them, the kinds of goals they're setting are also about recognising that some of the things that worked in their previous communities won't work here. So they're looking for new ideas, uh, which means that a lot of those strategies that are available to everybody are the ones that they pick up on. 
And the thing that is just needed, though, is for them to uh, tailor them to their own circumstances. And when we talk about developing a parenting plan that's fit for purpose and relevant, both culturally and the way in which it needs to be deployed, the thing that is also, I think, very important here is to think about the relationship between, you know, the gender issues that are involved. And I mean, one of the things that we know with parenting programs is that there's still many more mothers who will attend a parenting program. It doesn't mean the fathers are not interested, though, does it? It doesn't mean that they're not prepared to do something different. What's been your experience in every family with the sort of the father side of Yeah, we've had a significant proportion of dads come. Mm-hmm. Often dads come with their partner. But what we, I, I would say that what I've found in every family is that we are getting a lot of dads who do come, who are coming because they want to re-engage with their children, mm-hmm. often after separation, which may also have been after an incarceration or those sorts of things. And we have dads who see parenting, learning about parenting and arming their toolkit, so to speak, as a critical step in them forming new relationships with their children. It's interesting around the issue of father engagement and when you've got males and females, they may be partners, but there could be dads on their own and mums on their own. You know, in the hands of a skilled clinician, an evidence-based parenting program needs to try to tune in to what are the issues that the fathers in the group, particularly if you've got a female presenter mm-hmm. or, or yep. facilitator, yep. the issues that fathers in the group are likely to be saying are difficult or challenging for them. And there's some interesting research that shows that one of the areas that fathers report more difficulties with is actually assisting kids with their emotions, with anxiety, with things that are more, not the not the aggression, not the tantrums, not the times where kids are being disobedient, but it's actually how to deal with emotion. That's interesting, and I, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and I, I just wonder when, when we start thinking about why men would experience that is more of a challenge than the women in the group. Do you have any sort of thoughts about that? I don't know whether we're going down the biology track here or socialisation tracks around the kinds of ways in which we have intergenerationally... Learned to express emotion. Yeah, Yeah. and, and made some things okay for... more okay for girls than boys. I think also if you don't feel confident in dealing with an emotion and seeing your children upset or frustrated is not a pleasant experience for a parent. And so often I think if you're not sure what to do about it, then just trying to turn it off or avoid it seems like an easier strategy. So we've talked about engagement of the community. We've talked about involvement of people from different cultures and different backgrounds and so on. But one of the things that is really crucial in making a population-based approach work are the kinds of partnerships that build within a community to support the deployment and implementation of evidence-based programs. So I wonder if you'd just give us some of your thoughts about who are the crucial partners in every family that have made it possible for the programs to get out there and why do you think they have been so important to be involved? Yeah, okay. Well, and they've changed over time, I would have to say as well. Mm-hmm. Who's important, who was important early is not necessarily who's important later on. It's an always 
evolving and it Mm -hmm. can sometimes rotate as well. So early on with every family specifically, we looked at government partners. Mm -hmm. So that included our state government, it included local government. So what we worked out very early on is that when we're talking about communities, we need to look at where the community hubs are. Mm -hmm. So who is it that kind of sets, not the tertiary services stuff, but who kind of looks after all of those aspects of life that make a community so your parks and your retail spaces and sometimes childcare and those and libraries and Mm -hmm. museums all those kinds of things that kind of make life and they become so important in promoting and supporting the program and and they are also outcomes for families like when things are going well for children it's when their families are engaging with the community and kids are getting those rich experiences. Otherwise, they're socially isolated, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And kids don't get those kind of the practice and the, the richness of the experiences they can get by going into a library and listening to a story being read, those kinds of things. Yeah, so part of the challenge then for a parenting program and the skills that parents are learning is how to engage with within their neighbourhoods and within the and to participate in the kind of community activities that are occurring and build that sense of identity that we as a community are is a good place to raise kids. Yeah, and we did that in a couple of ways. One, by just being at the places where children's types of services, like at library, reading programs, to be available and present so that parents could talk to us while their children were hearing a library and read a book, for example. But we also ran parenting programs within community agencies, which were sporting groups, libraries, churches, as well as our educational facilities, and even in probation and parole. And so we went where parents and children go, which then brings them into those spaces if they weren't already being there and Mm -hmm. shows them what else is available for their families. One thing that it would be nice to focus on is just thinking about the documentation of the impact of the Every Family Initiative. Uh, We can't actually talk about the outcomes right now because there's this data harmonisation process that's taking place, bringing in different data sets. I wonder from a scientific perspective, if you'd like to just make a couple of comments about some of the challenges and issues that are associated with using administrative data to evaluate a population level intervention. Sure. So one of the unique things about this program is the use of administrative data. So data collected by government on a standard basis to evaluate the outcomes of the Every Family mm-hmm. Initiative. Not saying that this happens around the world, but ours is it's been a very big and complex uh, one of, of the more complex. So we're about? talking about data sets on child and parent health, mm-hmm. educational outcomes. We're talking about child protection outcomes. So looking at indices of child well-being and maltreatment, for example. So what we have had to do is look for with any research project, you have a set of research questions and things that you are what you are looking to make a difference on. Mm-hmm. And for us, that is a number of child and family factors that we would expect parenting to have some kind of role in. So the challenges around using government data is finding what data is there, 
And in a system like Australia, we have multiple legal and statutory jurisdictions. So we have a federal government, but we also have states, and then we have some data collected by local governments. And within each state, there are multiple different departments, and the data is held in many, many different data sets. So working very closely with government data custodians, so different types of data are owned by different parts of government. It's a very big process of applications, takes time making sure that all the privacy for families and our citizens are looked after. It's very careful and cautious. But it's necessary data to look at when you start asking the question, what are the population level effects of an intervention like this? And one of the things that becomes apparent is the data sources available are not always directly the best measure of the impact of the interventions that are being deployed, but it is what it is. That's right. And that's what's available. Let me just wrap up and I'd like you to just reflect for a moment, perhaps we could both do this, and just think about the key takeouts in terms the learnings to date from every family that you think are relevant to government policy? Okay. Any, any key takeouts from yeah, your Yeah, so I think that there are a couple. From the data side, I would say that what we have identified is some potential gaps in data. And we've also managed through the process of working with data custodians to free up potentially some types of data that will be able to be used for mm-hmm. other projects going forward, which is fabulous. So the use of administrative data is really important, I think, for population level. And so that's, that's, that's very true. And the other part is around the implementation of these kinds of programs or or initiatives. And what I think we a key takeout is that we really do, even though we take a systematic approach across multiple areas, there needs to be a level of local tailoring. So taking account of the the local context and working. So there will always be minor variations to make sure that what we are offering is fit for purpose. I'd like to respond to that too, because to me, every community is a unique community. They have their own texture and their histories and the the combination of people who live in those places can be somewhat different in a state as large and diverse as Queensland. So whenever we're taking a population approach, it's always a local solution. It has to be. Otherwise, it's not responsive to need. And that the thing that I think is really important is that in order for these programs to work at scale, you need a well-trained, well-supported, adequately supervised workforce who have dedicated capacity to deliver enough of an evidence-based program to enough people to reach enough of the population to expect to be able to see a shift at a whole of population yeah, and level. I would add to that that it needs to not just be at the tertiary end, but that the deployment of that needs to go across all of the kinds of institutions and places where parents go from the primary care education, childcare, into local community agency support around it, as well as those tertiary. So we need it all across. So we want high quality evidence-based support not to be everyone's business, but no one's responsibility. We want it to be everyone's business and responsibility. Yes. So the collective ownership of supporting the next generation of children is shared across multiple jurisdictions. Yeah, and just as an example of that is that what we've found with every family is how supportive business 
local business has been in promoting and just creating awareness of parenting support. So it hasn't just been our traditional service providers and educators who who deal with children regularly. It's been the local pharmacy, the little $2 shop the cafes and restaurants so it's family friendly businesses it makes sense for them to support it thank you kylie for coming in today and sharing your insights about every family so that's it for our latest episode of the life course center's families under pressure podcast i'm professor matt sanders look out for more episodes coming soon i hope you can tune in then